Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to State Library Victoria on what's um, a pretty warm day out there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, melting a little bit. It's nice and cool in here, so sit and relax. Bless you. Uh, my name is Anna Berkey, and I am the head of Start Space here at State Library Victoria, and it gives me a great pleasure to welcome you to tonight's policy pitch, which is going to be post-Trump, post-Brexit, post-policy, and the rise of populism, which incidentally, I think was the title of my high school uh, history essay, my final exam, where they hoped we would le learn lessons of the past and not need to revisit the rise of populism, but the wheel turns, and here we are. <laughs> So um, I would like to acknowledge that this uh, seminar is held on the traditional lands of the Kulin Nation and to pay my respects to um, their elders, past and present, and any elders who might be with us in the audience this evening. I'd also like to give a warm welcome to tonight's speakers, John Daly and Paul Austin, um, the Grattan Institute members and staff who are with us in the audience, the friends of the library, and all of you warm people who have stepped out of the sunshine tonight. The Policy Pitch is a joint initiative between the State Library and the Grattan Institute, and it's a really important partnership for us because it completes and um, augments our aim to be a place, a catalyst for ideas and discussion and debate about the really important things affecting our world and giving us an opportunity to debate, to debate and discuss the future world, the future Australia that we want to live in. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I am the head of Start Space, which is a new initiative from the State Library. It's our new center for entrepreneurship and innovation. It doesn't open for a couple of years. Um, it will open as part of the, the library's major redevelopment plan in 2020. But it's there to support very early stage uh, entrepreneurs, those who are thinking of starting a business, those who want to take over the world with their businesses, um, to give them co-working spaces to give them access to business resources, mentors, coaches. It's going to be a really special place of events and education to empower and support their vision for the future. And it also gives us an opportunity to continue that discussion about creativity and the world of work and what kind of Victoria we want to see in front of us. So tonight, I'm really looking forward to hearing some insights um, uh, about the rise of populism, which I hope has progressed somewhat since my history high school paper. Um, and I'm very pleased to be able to introduce our speakers to discuss the shifts over the years. John Daly is the CEO at Grattan Institute and is one of Australia's leading public policy thinkers with 25 years experience in public, private and university sectors. He's worked for ANZ and McKinsey in a career that also includes expertise in law, public policy, strategy and finance. Paul Austin is an editor at Grattan, is editor at Grattan and worked for many years as a journalist and editor at Fairfax and News Corporation. He reported from Canberra and Spring Street's press galleries and was at various times deputy editor and opinion editor of both The Age and the Australian newspapers. More recently, he's been an independent media and communications consultant specialising in speech writing, editing and strategic and political advice. So please welcome me in, please join me in welcoming John and Paul. Thank you so much, Anna. And can I also welcome everyone to 
this policy pitch uh, forum at this wonderful institution, the State Library. I'd like to join Anna in uh, acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, and I too pay my respects to their elders, past and present. Uh, as Anna mentioned, my name's Paul Austin, I'm the editor at Grattan, and I'm delighted to be joined on stage by my boss, <laughs> the Grattan CEO, John Daly. Anna's mentioned uh, just some of John's more formal credentials, but I thought I might add a few informal ones. John has been referred to publicly on the ABC as Australia's chief policy wonk, and he's been referred to privately in the Grattan Institute as a force of nature. And if this is the first time that you've seen a presentation from John, you're about to see why. John and a team of researchers at Grattan have spent a good deal of the past year looking at and thinking about the topic that we're discussing tonight, the rise of populism. That work will culminate in a substantial Grattan report early next year, just in time for the resumption of Parliament in 2018, as a matter of fact. But you will get much of the benefit of that work and thinking tonight. I hope you'll find it all fascinating. I'm sure you'll find some of it surprising. Before we start, let me briefly outline the structure for this evening. John and I will discuss the issues for half an hour, 40 minutes, uh, before we open up to questions from you, our audience members. I've got here some questions that some of you sent when you registered for tonight's event. Some of them are pretty good too, and I hope to put some of them to John, but we, but we certainly encourage live questions, if you like, from the floor, so please be ready when that time arrives. Uh, I should also mention that the Twitter handles and hashtags for this event are displayed to my left. So if you're inclined to live tweet tonight's discussion, please go right ahead. Okay, so let's get to it. I reckon, John, I need to say just three words to illustrate what we're talking about tonight. Brexit, Trump and Hanson. Those three words, I think, sum up one of the most tumultuous times in global and domestic politics that any of us have ever seen. All the old political certainties seem to be breaking down and we're all searching for some coherence amid the chaos. So John, as I welcome you, I wanna let you know that I want you to perform a small miracle for us tonight. All I want you to do is to make sense of this weird and wacky era of politics. We've called tonight's event the rise of populism and we wanna cover three broad questions. Firstly, what exactly has been going on in politics in recent times. Secondly, why has this happened? What, what might have caused these voting trends and the rise of populism and protest politics? And thirdly, what should be done about it? That's all, John, that's all. Uh, so let's start at the start. John, what, what is the story of the ballot box over recent years, first internationally and perhaps then domestically? So if we look internationally uh, across the developed world for about the last 30 years, uh, the vote share of centre-left and centre-right parties has been falling. 
And that's true in pretty much every developed country. Uh, there is an extraordinary report put out by Barclays Bank, of all people. Um, obviously, there was someone who had a first-class honours degree in history from uh, Oxford or somewhere and uh, had always wanted to actually do something you know, important as opposed to write about the latest company. Uh, and this was a big enough trend that they finally let him off the leash, or her, uh, and they wrote 70 actually quite brilliant pages on the um, rise of populism across the developed world. And it's, it's a very clear trend. And one of the things that happened was, of course, when minor parties win 10% of the vote, that's kind of a curiosity. And when they win 20% of the vote, that's kind of vaguely interesting. When they, when they win 30% of the vote, that's, that actually starts to matter. Uh, when they win 40% of the vote, people actually pay attention. And when they win 50.01% of the vote, then, of course, the election result is radically different. Uh, and it's worth remembering that um, both the Trump and the Brexit results were very, very close. Um, the important thing about them was more that they were not the culmination. They were just the latest point on the trend, and if it hadn't happened then, it might well have happened later. So that's what we see happening around the world. And then when we look at that trend in a bit more detail, we can see the rise of these minor parties, alternative parties, across the board, but particularly in regions. So away from the large capital, large cities, which around the world are an increasing share of the economy and usually an increasing share of the population as well. And that distinction between the cities and the regions is not just an Australian phenomenon, yes? No, it's indeed. If you look at the map of Brexit, it's absolutely true, as I think has kind of entered the popular imagination, that London voted to stay. But it's not true that the rest of, not Britain, the rest of England um, voted to remain, uh, sorry, voted to, voted to leave. In fact, uh, if we look at, uh, at England, um, uh, Oxford, Cambridge, Bristol, um, Southampton, uh, Leeds, Manchester, Birmingham, pretty much every single substantial city in England voted to stay and all of the country areas voted um, to leave. Uh, of course, Scotland is literally these days another country. They all voted to stay as well. Um, but, but it's a very clear pattern. And also, if you look at the map of the United States election, um, what happened with Trump, uh, you know, the kind of, again, the popular imagination is that um, uh, Hillary won essentially the West Coast and the East Coast, uh, and Donald won everything else. Whereas if you look at the map very carefully, and the New York Times very helpfully lets you kind of blow it up and go and play with it, um, what you discover is that Hillary didn't simply lose Iowa, for example, which of course is one of the most important states. Hillary carried pretty much every town in Iowa, and she lost all of the regional areas in Iowa itself. And, then, and when you zoom in on the map of the United States, you discover that's kind of what happened everywhere. So Hillary took all of the cities and the towns, and Donald basically took all of the bits in between. And it so happens that in the United States, all the bits in between actually cover a very large number of people. It's an interesting contrast to Australia, where something like 75% of the population live in you know, five or six big cities. Uh, and uh, when you then take out the major towns, the Bendigos and Ballarats of this world, the number of people who live in regional Australia, meaning towns of less than, call it 5,000 people, is actually quite a small um, proportion of the population. Um, you, you can colour a map and um, essentially 89% of the population lives in things in parts of Australia that you can only see if you blow the map up really large. 11% um, uh, of the population lives essentially on most of what you can see at a distance.
and who is benefiting from this within the Australian body politic? So that's an interesting question because when we look at, at Australia, we see two phenomena. Um, we see a rise in the minor party vote in general, wherever you are. So it used to be that minor parties took about 10%, and I'm not counting the Greens as a minor party for the moment, they used to take about 10% of the vote in inner city areas. They now take 20%, so it's been a big jump up. And then minor parties have always done better the further you go away from the capital cities, GPO, kind of actually, it, it correlates really well. Our state boundaries are actually not drawn that bad, not that badly. And, and as you go further from the GPO, minor party vote goes up. It used to be about 20% um, and it's jumped up to typically around about 35%, um, so a big jump. So that's what we've seen. And then who wins that? So as you started off by saying, well, everyone thinks it's about Pauline Hanson. That's yeah. one of the myths I really want to explode here. Uh -huh. This is not about Pauline. This is about a lot of people whose names you probably don't recognise. So if we look across the country, uh, in the last Senate election, um, Pauline Hanson's One Nation Party took about 3 or 4% of the vote. Minor parties in general took about 25% of the vote. So she's quite a small, in fact, a bit more than that, 26% of the vote. She's quite a small percentage of what is going on here. Uh, and, and even if you look at some Victorian electorates in the region, so let's take um, the seat of Murray, uh, which essentially covers Shepparton and the areas around it. Um, and yes, Pauline Hanson's One Nation Party gets more there than they say did in the seat of Melbourne that covers where we are now. Uh, and they take 4%. They were almost outpolled by the Animal Justice Party that took 3%. So um, across Australia, you see this pattern very commonly. In fact, if you go to Queensland, which is where Pauline won more, voted, more of the vote than she did anywhere else, um, I don't think there is a single electorate in which, the one Hanson, in which the One Nation Party got more of the vote than all of the other minor parties. Uh, and indeed, you get a really interesting pattern in Queensland that shows you that, that the One Nation Party essentially was, got almost none of the vote in central Brisbane, and its vote then went up and up as you went into further and further away from Brisbane, all the other minor parties were actually pretty consistently around about 20% of the vote, wherever you were. So it's not all about Pauline, but can I put it to you that it is, you say people we don't know, but it is about, there is a personality uh, emphasis here, is there not? That's true, and, and it tends to be very state-based personalities. So Jackie Lambie won more of the minor party vote than anyone else in Tasmania. Nick Xenophon won more of the minor party vote than anyone else in South Australia. Pauline did win more of the minor party vote than anyone else in Queensland. Uh, Darren Hinch uh, was the brand name, if you like, uh, for Victoria. And it's interesting that none of these brands really carried particularly well beyond their home state. So Darren Hinch's uh, Justice Party, you know, barely you know, registers on the graph anywhere except Victoria. One Nation Party does register on the graph outside of Queensland, but often it's quite small in the overall scheme of things. So what we've been trying to work out is, why is it that collectively mm. these minor parties are getting so much more of the vote than they used to? Okay, so that's the easy bit. We've exploded one myth. It's not all about Pauline in Australia. But let me move on now to the hard bit, John, which is question number two. Why is this happening? Why is there a rise in the minor party votes? Why is there a rise in populism? And I want to break it down, if I may, to, to three general 
subjects, areas. Are we talking about an economic phenomenon? Are we talking about a social phenomenon or a cultural phenomenon? And let me put a proposition to you, John, about, about economic factors. I reckon I know what's going on. This is all about economic disadvantage and increased inequality. As the cities have got richer and the regions have felt poorer, people in the bush have decided to protest at the ballot box. Simple, isn't it? Isn't this all a cry for help from the bush? Mm. Well, one of the problems in this area is that a lot of things have been happening over the last 10 years uh, around the world as well as in Australia. Uh, and, and people tend to say, well, because this correlated with the rise of minor party vote in the following country, therefore the rise of minor party vote was caused by that. Now, as policy wonks in this room know, causation does not imply correlation. Although one thing I do want you to think about is that by and large, non-correlation does imply non-causation. If something doesn't happen and something else does happen, it's a pretty fair bet that the first thing did not cause the second thing. <laughs> And that's where Australia is very interesting because economically, of course, Australia's had quite a different course to a lot of the developed world over the last 10 or 15 years, whereas the, the global financial crisis was a really big deal uh, in Europe and a very pretty big deal in the United States. It, was, it, was a, it, it affected the Australian economy, but it was a kind of minor deviation in an otherwise pretty rapidly rising economy as opposed to a significant downturn that you know a number of European countries still haven't recovered from what now you know eight years later. Um, so Australia is an interesting case to, to try and find some of these non-causation, non-correlation things. So let's look at what's actually happened here. So one theory, and you hear a lot about this in the United Kingdom, is that all of this is driven by um, you know essentially uh, economic um, lack of progress, about um, wages being flat or declining and so on. Now, of course, the problem with that is in Australia, the big jump in minor party vote actually happened in 2013. Didn't happen in 2016, went up a bit further in 2016, but the big jump was in 2013. And the problem is that in 2013, Wages, it is a little while ago, so we've probably forgotten, but wages in 2013 had gone up a long way in the previous four years. It was the end of the mining boom in Australia. Um, in fact, that had been pretty well shared. Um, yes, wages had gone up much faster in um, uh, Western Australia and Brisbane and Queensland than they had in Victoria and New South Wales, but even in Victoria and New South Wales, things had gone pretty well. If you polled people, they said that they were feeling pretty happy about their economic circumstances, and yet that was the point at which the minor party vote went up. Are you telling me, boss, that wages used to go up? You know, once upon a time, real wages used to go up. People like had more to spend in their pockets. And, you know, people who can remember back as far as 2013 will remember you could kind of go and take a holiday in the United States and it seemed cheap. Now, it doesn't quite feel like that anymore, but that's what it was like. Um, so that's one economic theory. And then the other economic theory you hear a lot about is that, well, this is all about inequality. And, and it is absolutely true that in the United States you've had a significant issue in which incomes for the top 1% have gone up a long way over the last 30 years and incomes for people at the bottom, indeed, at the middle have barely moved. And so they say, well, that's what's happened. Therefore, we had the rise of Trump. Now, the problem with that, certainly when you apply it to Australia, well, the problem with that in the United States is the people who voted for Trump were not the people who were doing really badly economically. They were actually the people in the middle. 
Um, and then when you apply it to Australia, it really doesn't work because income inequality in Australia hasn't got particularly worse over the last 10 or 15 years. Say that again. Inco income inequality hasn't got that much worse. So, yes, you can look at it and kind of depending on exactly what you take as your starting point and your end point, you can kind of get your Gini coefficient to go up by a tiny click or down by a tiny click. But the right way, I think, to read the data is, look, all the boats rose a long way over a 15-year period. Wages of households in the bottom 20% over a 15-year period went up by about 25%. Now, you know, it's glib to put those in numbers, but let's kind of turn that into real life. So that means that if we were to undo that, we'd be taking a low-income household on, call it, $30,000 a year, and we'd be taking in the order of $7,000 away from them. Now, can you imagine the screaming? It's a very big shift that we have seen. So the bottom has done reasonably well. The, very, the top 20% has done a little bit better, but actually not that much better. Wealth inequality is a different story. So, so wealth inequality, essentially, wealth for the top 20% has gone up a long way, wealth for the bottom 20% has barely moved, and the, the next 20% up has also barely moved. But what about income inequality between the cities and the regional areas? Well, again, the, the conventional wisdom is that the regions have done really badly, but if you look at income per person over the last 11 years, uh, this is an interesting story. Um, we put out some work that, that looked at the um, tax statistics, because they've started putting out the tax statistics by postcode, which is fantastic. Uh, and you can look at at least taxable income over an 11-year period. Uh, and what it shows is that income per person in the regions is lower, always has been, um, but income per person in the regions rose at pretty much the same rate as in the cities. And that's true for each of the states. So, as I said earlier, incomes in Victoria didn't go up as fast as Queensland, but incomes in Victorian regions went up about as fast as incomes in Melbourne. And if you really delve into the statistics, what you see, and we published this in our piece on regional patterns of... Um, uh, of the economy and of population, uh, the population. What you can see is that they went up fastest right in the centre of Melbourne, basically where we are here. But if you go more than about three or four kilometres away from here, they kind of drop off, the income growth drops off pretty quickly. And in fact, the places in Victoria that have had the slowest income growth are not the regions, they are the outskirts of Melbourne. And that's a pattern that you see repeated across each of the Australian states. Mm, okay, so you've... Busted another myth. You're not going to let me hold on to that one. So, so let's well, and before we go on from that, one yeah. of the interesting things is it's very curious if this is what is driving the minor party vote that none of them talk about it. If you go and look at the minor party platforms, you'll see lots of things on those platforms, everything from anti-vaccination to tightening up rules on pedophiles, but you will struggle to find anything interesting about income inequality. They're just not that interested. Mm. Jackie Lambie a little bit, but, but otherwise... Income inequality is not what they talk about. So, and then when you analyse their voters, their voters on a left-right scale, kind of more or less exactly halfway in between the Liberal Party and the ALP. They're just, they're not particularly pro-redistribution, they're not particularly anti-redistribution. They're kind of literally in the middle. Okay, let's draw a line under the economic factors. What about, what about then social factors? And again, let me put the proposition, surely, 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 this is a revolt by the bush against we 
inner urban sophisticates in our cosmopolitan cities with all our socially progressive attitudes. Does that explain what's going on? Well, very fortunately, um, we've just spent, you know, and, it turned out $110 million in the extremely good cause of testing that exact proposition with, 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 with extreme thoroughness. Really? What was the result, John? <laughs> So, so uh, once upon a time, we had to kind of rely on the social services, social surveys without a decent sample size. Now, we now have a, a sample size of, you know, I don't know what it was, pushing 15 million. Um, so that's probably pretty reliable in the overall scheme of things. Um, and, of course, what it showed was that um, uh, support for same-sex marriage was very highly correlated um, with uh, electorates that have lots of people who have no religion. So the biggest single predictor of the same-sex marriage vote was essentially the religiosity or otherwise of a given electorate. It turns out that how far the electorate is from the city, um, uh, um, what the income level is, all of those kind of things are actually much less good predictors of how the electorate voted. And of course, we saw that essentially the, the big no vote turned out not to be in the regional areas. It turned out to be... Uh, essentially in um, Western Sydney. Mm. And yes, there were a couple of regional uh, Queensland areas that were big no votes. Actually, very few regional areas in Victoria mm. that were even voted no at all. Um, so as an explanation, that's not looking good. And if, uh, we unfortunately don't have $110 million surveys for most of this stuff. We have to rely on something called the Australian Election Survey and a couple of others that have rather smaller sample sizes than 15 million people. Um, but Nevertheless, um, comfortingly, they do correlate with that $110 million survey and uh, when they did look at same-sex marriage. And what we can see from those surveys is that um, uh, over time, Australian support for what you might loosely describe as socially liberal causes has been increasing. So whether that's about same-sex marriage or support for abortion or the belief that criminal, um, essentially, we shouldn't you know, lock up as many people in jails um, uh, or legalisation of drugs, particularly marijuana, um, all of these causes, we have gradually become more liberal. Mm. And then when you look at the differences between regions and cities, you discover they're not that different on most of these things, as we just saw with the same-sex marriage survey. They're just not that different. So the minor party vote has increased as socially progressive attitudes have increased. That's right. That's a good example of <laughs> non-correlation probably implies non-causation. So the implication of that is I wish those who are setting up conservative parties and the belief that they're going to capture a lot of this minor party vote the very best of luck because they may well need it. OK, let's rule, rule the line under these social progressive factors. Um, uh, what I call cultural issues, the idea that that my country is changing and I don't like it. People like me don't run the show anymore. Are we, are we starting to get closer when we look at these sort of cultural issues, John? Well, of course, that sets up a kind of them and us. So I think it, it might well explain what's, why we're seeing this increasing differential between the regions and the cities. So I don't think it explains the general increase in the minor party vote, and we'll have to kind of find another explanation for that in a moment. But, but in terms of explaining this increasing differential between the regions and the cities, maybe. 
So one of the few things on which you do get significant differences in attitudes between um, regions and cities is essentially around attitudes to migrants. So regional areas tend to be significantly, not enormously, but significantly more anti-migrant. Um, so they say that the, they're more likely to say that Australia is taking too many migrants. They're more likely to say that migrants cause crime, which is one of those kind of fantastic survey questions, which is designed to actually test something completely different from what you are asking. Um, uh, and uh, it is very clear that regional areas less pro-migrant um, than city areas. Interestingly, hasn't changed that much. And really, the only time that the that the um, uh, attitudes um, saying that you know Australia has too many migrants. The only time that really jumped was in 2009, which was also the time when Australia really did actually very substantially increase the number of um, migrants coming to Australia. And so it might well be that that was responding to a reality in terms of the number of people who were moving as opposed to a cultural shift. Um, so there is this big difference. Um, uh, it is clear that um, voters for minor parties are more likely to have anti-migrant attitudes because we can drill down on the surveys to see that that's what's going on. It's clearly true that some, but by no means all, of the minor parties um, uh, have a um, less sympathetic attitude to migrants is probably the most charitable one could be. So obviously the One Nation parties in that category. Uh, Jackie Lambie's party certainly has elements of the platform that... But Xenophon certainly not. Hinch yep. certainly not. You, you'll argue. struggle to find anything in there. So, yeah. so it's not a universal for minor parties. But certainly some of them talk about it. Certainly their voters are more likely to be worried about this. And as we've been trying to trawl through the kind of political science literature to kind of understand what's going on here, I think I think you put it beautifully when you talked about um, uh, people like me don't run the show anymore. Uh, and there's a kind of whole line of, of theory in this, which is that some of what's going on is about resentment. It's one thing not to have power. It's quite another to have had power and feel that you have lost it. And that's a very potent political emotion if you like. And I th we think that that's one of the things that's going on here and indeed going on in Brexit and going on uh, with Trump. And it's no accident, obviously, that both the Brexit campaign and the Trump campaign had pretty strong anti-migrant elements to them. So we do think that that's what's going on. Well, I think one of the nicest ways of illustrating it is, um, uh, you know, go back 20 odd years and we gave four gold logies over the period of about six years to Bert Newton. Uh, and and I suspect that if you were in Benalla, you know, Bert's kind of one of us. Last year, we gave a gold logie to um, Waleed Ali. Now, I thought that was totally remarkable that we gave a gold logie to a genuine public intellectual. So someone who's out there talking in public the whole time, but who at the same time is actually a really, really good political scientist. You know, if I had to talk about this stuff to anyone, I'd talk about it to Waleed. He's, he's deeply insightful. So I thought that was remarkable. I don't think that the reaction we had at the time, which was, you know, quite significant, was driven by that perception. I think it was driven by the fact that although in Melbourne or Sydney he is one of us, in Benalla, he doesn't necessarily seem to be one of us. And one of the quite extraordinary things that's in that publication that we put out around um, uh, regional patterns in Australia's economy and population is the maps of migrant origins, because it's really, really striking. 
If you take people born in Asia, so forget about people who, whose parents were born in Asia, but who they were born in Australia. So if we take people born in Asia, mm -hmm. there is lots of Melbourne and, and lots and lots of Melbourne, and for that matter, Sydney and Brisbane and Perth, where you will find suburbs that are 15% born in Asia. If you go into regional Australia, with the exception of a couple of mining areas in WA and Northern Territory, the only places in Australia that have more than 5% of the population born in Asia in regional Australia are Shepparton, uh, and, or the area around Shepparton, uh, and the area around Griffith. Mm -hmm. If you look for areas in regional Australia that have, I think it's more than 2% um, of the population born in the Middle East, the only place you will find is Shepparton. Whereas, of course, you can go to you know, lots of places in Melbourne and you will find 10, 15% um, of the population born in the Middle East and Africa. Mm -hmm. So we've become ethnically very different society. Uh, cities, very multicultural, lots of people who've come from all over the world and essentially regional areas that are without doubt very white. And what I think that means is that when you ask who is us, you get a different answer in regions. When you, when you ask that question in cities, it just never occurs to people to say, well, you know, someone born in Asia isn't one of us. And we're talking about fear of the unknown. It's fear of the other. And, and by definition, other just doesn't mean someone from Asia or someone from the Middle East in Melbourne or Sydney, because they are very much part of the community, part of people that you see that are part of us, people that you, you actually don't even register where they're coming from. Whereas, you know, when you go to regional pretty much anywhere in Australia, it's very obvious. So let me uh, uh, summarise some of the written questions that we had around this issue, John. Uh, one of them quite blunt. We're talking about uh, anti-migrant attitudes from Hanson, from Lambie, uh, from some populations outside the cities. Is this about a racist Australia? I think it's a bit more complicated than that. In fact, quite a lot more complicated than that. I think what it's about is, as I said, this feel of loss of power. And it's not just about the way that the cities are now very different from the regions in terms of their ethnic mix. The cities are now also very different from the cities in terms of their educational mix. Mm -hmm. So essentially cities getting more and more in the way of tertiary education, regional areas it's going up much more slowly. Um, you've also got differences just in the pure culture. So if you, it's not true today, but if you walk out of the front door of the, muse uh, of the library and it's howling with rain, it would be very easy to be in Boston or Helsinki or obviously London or Bristol or any number of big cities around the world. But you are very definitely not in Mildura. That's actually not true. If you look at pictures going back, you know, 30 years ago from Melbourne, it, it was a much less developed place. You, you still get a sense of this when you go to Adelaide. It's much, much less built up. Um, you know, you can walk out, you know, unless you're kind of right, right in the one street in Adelaide, you can walk out the front door and you, you might be in Mildura. I mean, just even visually, it's quite, it's not that different. So our cities have visually changed. The built form has, has changed quite radically. What people do has changed quite radically. Their education has changed quite radically. Even the things we talk about have changed. So I remember when I went to school 
more years than I care to admit in public uh, when it's being recorded, um, the, the texts we, we did in English were dominated by things that were essentially about regional Australia, one way or another. Mm -hmm. I look at the texts that my children study, and look, there's a smattering of things about regional Australia, but most of them are about life in Australian cities because basically that's where most of the people live. Mm -hmm. And it actually, if anything, it took us took Australian literature longer to catch up with that than, you know, than the reality, but it has very definitely caught up with it. If you look at most of the novels that have been, you know, published in Australia over the last 10 or 15 years, you know, most of them, one way or another, have dealt with life in Australia's cities as opposed to life in Australia's regions. It's not that we're ignoring the regions, but it's now much more a city-dominated culture in a way that, go back certainly 40 years, our culture was much more dominated by what was going on in regions. Let me put one other uh, cultural idea to you, that that this is about, in part, the phenomen phenomenon of falling trust in institutions and, in particular, declining trust in government. Now, that, I think, is a much better explanation. It at least <laughs> correlates, which is, which is one better than, you know, most of the other things we've been talking about so far. So, so firstly, falling trust in government uh, has been falling and falling quite quickly both around the developed world and in Australia. So this is something where we are similar to the rest of the world. Um, uh, minor party voters are much more likely to talk about, uh, sorry, much more likely to have attitudes that they don't trust government, say that government is run in the, you know, for a few big interests, all of those kind of things. When you look at the language of minor party voters, if you, uh, minor parties, when you start looking at their language through this lens, you suddenly see what they're up to. And it's not just Pauline Hanson, it's also Nick Xenophon. It's about the way that you cannot trust um, the, you know, the, the large parties, they're not governing in the public interest, they're governing in their own interest. Um, uh, when you uh, look, I mean, if you look at Donald Trump, um, who, you know, has many qualities, but one quality he has is a remarkable ability to capture public mood. So it was about drain the swamp. Mm. It, it clearly resonated as a line. Uh, and, and if you start looking at what minor parties say, you'll find that this is a really big part of their rhetoric, and they say things that neither of the major parties would say about each other, and by and large, the Greens don't say either, um, that our institutions are broken, that political parties are not advocating, are not, are not working their own in, in the public interest. And you can see there's, there's, there's plenty of public resonance around this. So. Um, you know, as you would know, Grattan Institute has done a lot of work on budgets, and it always used to frustrate me that every time I stood up here and talked about budgets, I'd get a question that said, yes, John, but, but you know, what about parliamentary entitlements? And I'd sit there and think, <laughs> what about parliamentary entitlements? You know, in the scheme of Australian government budgets, they are less than a rounding error. They just don't matter. They are not going to fix the problem. And it was when I did this work that it suddenly struck me, yeah, but, but that's not why people are excited about them. People are excited about them because they are an emblem, a symbol of the way that parliamentarians are governing in their own interest, personal interest, rather than the public interest. That's why it's such an important symbol, despite the fact that, you know, in the overall scheme of the Commonwealth budget, spending $8,000 on a chopper really is not going to make any difference. But, of course, it played for weeks in the newspapers because it's symbolically important. I think the same reason that political donations play so large. In the overall scheme of the money sloshing around in Australia, they're tiny. 
but as a symbol of, you know, power is being bought by some people and not by others, they create an immense amount of focus and interest. Which I think neatly brings us to question three, which is, what should we do about all this? And I think, perhaps before I ask that question, let's start with the first principle question, should we do something about this? That is, why should we be concerned, John? Why does it matter in a democracy that popul populism is on the rise? That's, that's a pure and simple expression of democratic will, isn't it? Well, I think that's, uh, in a sense, exactly right. Um, and uh, to the extent that minor parties are, for example, going to you know, push for um, governance, uh, that results in governance that's more in the public interest and led in less in the interests of those who are doing the ruling, that's probably a good thing. Mm -hmm. And dem democracies have always been through that process. It's rarely entirely painless, um, but it's a good thing. Uh, the whole point about democracy is it's got an inbuilt mechanism that says at the point that government becomes too obviously separated from the interests of the people, then the people have a tendency to change the government. And that is absolutely a good thing. Uh, the catches are, I think, particularly this regional phenomenon that we've seen. Having, having a country in which essentially one part feels that they're kind of not part of it anymore is a real problem. And to the extent that this is expressing that feeling, um, I think that that is an issue we need to deal with. And then I think that the real problem is that um, there are as many theories about what is... Um, driving the rise of minor party voting as there are reactions to a Rorschach blot. Uh, and they tell you things like a Rorschach blot tells you. In other words, they tell you what it is that people really care about in advance. And there's a real danger that we'll wind up adopting policies because people think it's going to reduce the minor party vote uh, rather than because it's actually good policy. So one theory is that the minor party vote is going up because of increasing fear and increasing fear of migrants. And so one way to deal with that is that you spend a lot of time talking about national security. Now, ironically, I suspect that the more you talk about national security, the more you make people afraid. The more you make people afraid, the more they fear the other. And if they're already feeling, fearing the other in regional areas, ironically, the more you talk about national security, the more you may be increasing the vote of minor parties. Mm. Mm. Um, but I suspect that that's a political calculus that a number of people haven't necessarily thought through. Um, similarly, you see other political parties saying, oh, this is all about inequality. So what we need to do is reduce inequality and the minor party vote will go down. Now, my sus suspicion is they're going to be badly disappointed about that. Um, now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that inequality is not a problem, I'm not saying that we shouldn't necessarily do things about it, but I am suggesting that if you're doing policy simply because you think it's going to retrieve this minor party vote, you are apt to be disappointed. And then the third thing that worries me about this is, I think there is something going on here around the trust in government. You don't have to spend a lot of time thinking about why trust in government might be falling. So, um, we have parties whose members are less and less representative of the population as a whole. So the memberships are shrinking. Um, the ALP membership is now very much concentrated around union members, and of course, fewer and fewer people in the um, Australian population are actually members of the union, uh, of any union. Uh, the Liberal Party uh, is essentially um, uh, both shrinking and then essentially aging. Aging is the most polite one can be about it. Um, uh, you Dying. Know. <laughs> 
so um, it's, it too is becoming less and less representative of the population as a whole. Um, you're also getting more and more people into parliament uh, who essentially have only ever worked as part of the political machine. Um, it is very difficult to imagine a train driver mm. as the Prime Minister today. Someone who's actually driven a train as opposed to gone and talked to one or two train drivers and then kind of hopped off to the Industrial Relations Commission to talk about it. <laughs> so actual train drivers. Um, with, so our parties are less representative. Um, these surveys also show that there's an increasing belief that government is being run for a few big interests. And certainly that's something that we do see at Grattan Institute, which is um, the power of political lobbies and vested interest groups is getting larger, not smaller. One of the reasons why it's so hard to get and, and seems to be getting harder to get sensible policy reform through is that it's getting easier and easier for lobby groups to essentially stymie change one way or another. Uh, and certainly the resources that are going into both um, lobby groups uh, and into uh, government relations areas appear to be increasing uh, and they appear to be winning more often. Uh, so I can see why the average Australian voter might be saying, I trust government less than I used to, and my worry is that we fail to take that seriously, mm. and I think we should. Mm. Mm. Okay, I've had my turn. I want to, if I may, open up for questions now. If you'd like to ask a question to drill into... John's knowledge or to take issue with any or all of what he's just said, now's your chance. Um, please raise your hand if you'd like to ask a question and if you do get the call, wait for a microphone to get to you. And please can I ask that you be as brief as possible with questions rather than statements. The woman in the middle there, please, first up. Thank you. Thinking about generational inequality, how does the age dynamic fit in? You know, are younger people in the regional areas more progressive or what, sort of what's that dynamic at play? Um, so I think one of the traps in this area is to assume that when you're talking about one thing, you're talking about everything. So one of the things that's going on is the increase in the minor party vote. A totally different thing that is going on is people voting for political parties much more based on their age than on their income or social class. Uh, so, uh, and we published a piece on this in The Guardian, you can find it on the Grattan website um, a month, a couple of months ago, that looked at what had happened in the United Kingdom election. The big story was not that young people came out and voted more than they had perhaps for the Brexit referendum and then a number of elections before that. The big story was that younger people um, have always tended to be a little bit more left than older people. But in the last election, they quite radically voted for Jeremy Corbyn and the Labor Party in Britain. So traditionally, that split for, say, 25-year-olds has been um, in the order of about 55-45. In the last election, it was 75-25. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just the 25-year-olds. So the 35 to 40-year-olds broke 
Now, if you saw those kind of patterns reflected in Australia with compulsory voting and a population that's a bit younger than the UK's, it would be a landslide. Um, so I don't think that those younger people are voting particularly for minor parties. I think what you're seeing, at least in places like the UK election, is them increasingly voting for, as it turned out, Jeremy Corbyn and the, and the Labor Party in Britain, and old people correspondingly um, very much voting uh, for the Conservatives in the UK election. And you can see elements of that happening in Australia, but not so much. On the other, in terms of the voting behaviour. On the other hand, in terms of the underlying economics of that, what drove that vote in the United Kingdom, as far as we can make out, is a couple of things. One is um, big increases in tertiary fees, much larger, I might add, than in Australia and much larger than are proposed in Australia. Uh, the second thing that happened, and this is kind of at the risk of going into a wee bit of, of UK detail, but it does actually turn out to matter, the UK has this thing for pensions, which says that in any one year, the old age pension will be go up by whatever has increased the most out of inflation, a basket of goods that are kind of the things that old people are more likely to buy, and wages. Now, what that meant was that when the financial crisis hit Britain, everybody else's wages, real wages, went down. But inflation, of course, you know, kept doing its thing. So pensioners got a real wage rise at the same time that the rest of the population got a wage cut. Now, in Australia, what we have is something a bit different, which says that the age pension goes up by the greatest of um, wages or inflation back to an index, and I can't remember when, what date we set the index, but what it means is that if you have a year in which inflation happens to be higher than, than wages, in the following year, if wages if happen to be higher than inflation, you kind of give that advantage back. In the UK, you get to lock it in, which is why they call it the triple lock. And May proposed in her election platform that she would um, do away with the triple lock. Uh, that wasn't surprising. This is something which has been acknowledged as a pretty big issue in the UK, and it's you know, not difficult to see why. There's been endless parliamentary inquiries about exactly what they're going to do and so on. Anyway, May put it into her platform. It hadn't exactly been well telegraphed. It went completely berserk in the telegraph. Uh, and uh, within literally 24 hours, May had completely backtracked and said, we are committing that we will never change the triple lock. Now, that did lock in the over 60-year-olds of the UK, but I suspect for the typical 25-year-old, it was a fantastic symbol of, right, that's it, the Tories are never going to do anything for me. And, of course, Jeremy Corbyn very much went after that youth vote, and the rest, as they say, is history. Now, if we look at what's happening in Australia and all of the work that we've done with Wealth of Generations is you're seeing some of the same patterns. You're seeing a younger generation that's not seeing its income go up quite as fast as its parents, certainly not seeing its wealth go up nearly far as fast as its parents. Um, you're seeing increasing budget transfers to older households that essentially younger households are either paying for now or are, will be paying for because we're deficit funding them. Um, on none of these things are we doing it as badly as the UK, but we're kind of heading in the same direction. And so could it happen to some extent here? And our answer is, look, we think it could, um, but I think it's a totally different issue from this minor party issue. Thank you. Uh, down the front, the gentleman here, please. Second row. <coughs> Sorry. 
It, it seems to me that openness is a big driver of trust. And I, I feel as if politicians are often not very open with the electorate as to the reasons for changes in legislation or taxation or whatever. Um, do you have any sympathy for the view that changing openness might be a lever? Look, I, I think it would certainly help. So the conventional wisdom has become that it's just too hard to get serious policy change through in Australia and the media cycle makes it impossible and so on. And there's certainly examples of, of policies that have been floated and, you know, blown up in the media and, um, uh, you know, within a week it's all over. One of the things I'd suggest, though, is a lot of the time those policies are floated without very much behind them. So there'll be very little in the way of explaining what problem do we think we're trying to solve here. There'll be very little in the way of analysis. There'll be even less in the way of something that says, look, this is a better way to solve the problem than anything else. Um, often there's actually quite shoddy analysis, and if that's the case, it does tend to get found much faster than it used to be because, frankly, it's easier to do the analysis than it's used to be, and it's easier to publicise it over Twitter than it used to be. And so there's plenty of things that are blown up very quickly. But I'd note, you can take on tough reform, and if you do prepare the ground, you've got a fighting chance. So if you look at the Gonski reforms, um, or the sort of 2.0 reforms that Simon Birmingham successfully navigated through the parliament, you know, in theory, that should have been impossible. <laughs> so in theory, um, uh, you know, the Catholic school system didn't do particularly well out of what was being, uh, out of the changes, certainly relative to what had been proposed historically. Uh, so in theory, that should have meant that there was absolutely no chance it was going to happen. In practice, though, I think the minister did a very good job of, A, explaining what problem there was, B, explaining what was being done and why it was being done and why it was fair, and, and C, having all of the detail at his fingertips, or at least at his department's fingertips, so that every time someone popped up and said, oh, it's unfair on such and such a school because they're getting such and such and their parents are such and such, the department was immediately, or, or, or the minister's office was immediately onto it, literally, when we were watching what was going on on Twitter, literally in half an hour, saying, well, actually, that's not right. This is how much the school used to get. This is how much they will be getting. This is exactly what their parents look like. Um, and... And, you know, they were prepared and it showed. And, and I think one of the things you can take away from that is it is possible to get substantial policy reform through even when there is quite substantial opposition, including from the, the Labor Party in that particular case, um, provided that you've done your homework. And I think one of the issues is too often people haven't done their homework and then they are not very open about the fact that they haven't done their homework. I mean, let's face it, you know, who goes to their maths class and says, yes, sir, yes, sir I haven't done my homework this week. Um, but, you know, we all try and bluff. Uh, and, and so I think that that happens. And, of course, the problem is that the electorate, a little bit like my maths teacher, was usually pretty good at seeing through that. Uh, and they figure it out. And so they don't trust people. Not just openness, but depth, doing the work, yeah. I want to take a question from the back. I can't see very well to the back. Gentlemen, towards the very back, please. Hi. Uh, kind of following on from that, I guess I wondered about your thoughts on the distinction between trust in, in government in terms of policy and what people in Parliament are actually doing and trust in um, the sort of party political side, the electioneering... Um, all these minor parties and communications, uh, conversations on like social media and cultural communications like that, um, if there's a distinction and, and where the lack of trust lies in that distinction. So um, if you look at the, uh, the, the data on trust historically for particular institutions, it's not 
great because the questions aren't always exactly the same. But what you can see over the medium run is a couple of interesting patterns. One is trust in politicians is falling, you know, full stop. <laughs> um, trust in the media is falling. So, you know, Paul jumped at the right time. Um, uh, trust in what is termed in the surveys the federal government is falling, and I suspect that most people, um, when they answer that question, you know, probably don't have a degree in constitutional law, and so they interpret federal government to mean essentially the ministers I see on television falling. Interestingly, uh, trust in big business falling. Um, interestingly, trust in the public service, when you ask it very specifically like, like that, holding up pretty well. Trust in the military, high and stable. Trust in the police force, high and stable. Trust in the judiciary, interestingly, going up quite materially. Um, so it's not a universal thing that trust in government, small g, very broadly defined as a constitutional lawyer might define it, is falling. I think it's trust in politicians is falling and trust in politics is falling as practised. Because one of the interesting things is when you look at um, are young people happy with democracy, uh, with politicians, and the answer is clearly no, you know, any number of surveys that show that. Are they uninterested in politics? And the answer is no, 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 they're really interested in politics. You know, they're all flocking to, to sign up to get up and, you know, the... Liberal National Party's really upset about that fact. Um, uh, they're all, you know, signing up to um, the electoral roll. So current um, enrolment of 18 to 19-year-olds is more or less the highest on record. Uh, and as, you know, I think it was very clear in the same-sex marriage survey, you know, their, their participation rates, you know, despite their alleged inability to know, know what a postbox looked like, was, was as high as anyone. I think, it, you know, you had to be 50-plus before your participation rate matched an 18-year-old's. So... Um, I think it is worth drawing the distinction between trust in politicians, which is clearly low and falling, and um, trust in democracy as practised, not particularly high, but interest in the political system does appear to be quite high. And I don't see people switching off politics, per se. I see them switching off politicians. Um, and essentially what they're doing is saying, well, I don't trust any of the major parties. That's why I'm voting for the minor parties. But I think that interest in politics is a reason for optimism. Yeah. Over this side, uh, the gentleman here. Thanks. Thank Hi, John. Rob Burgess. John, whenever we talk about this cultural divide that you've been describing... Um, whether it's here or abroad, the finger tends to get pointed fairly and squarely at the rise of populism um, as contributing to that. How do you see progressivism now actually contributing to that divide and what are the issues attached to it? Yeah. So one of the things we haven't talked about so far um, and I think is a trend is um, increasing uh, echo chambers... Um, between the right and left of our politics. So this is by and large not about the minor parties. This is a kind of about the major parties. And they're increasingly talking to themselves and, as they say, their base, which often means the party membership, which is, of course, very different from who votes for them. Um, they're often talking amongst themselves in an echo chamber and not listening to the other side. Um, uh, and you can, you know, there's been some very elegant work done in the United States to say, show that that's not just true of politicians and, and party members. It's actually true of um, the electorate as a whole has 
essentially divided into two different echo chambers that, that have much less interaction than they used to. And that's, I think, um, you know, online media is a big part of that explanation. It's essentially much easier to narrow cast than it used to be. It's more profitable to narrow cast than it used to be. Uh, and consequently, there's a lot more of it going on. So I think that's one part of what's going on. Another part of what's going on is that it used to be that in order to be a kind of big wheel in a, you know, some kind of fringe party, you just had to show up to a lot of meetings. Uh, and so that kind of tended to um, uh, favour a certain personality type, shall we say, that wasn't necessarily particularly good at marketing. Um, what's changed is that, of course, leadership in a lot of these fringe groups is now a function of essentially your social media presence and actually, that is a function of how good you are at marketing. So you now get status within these fringe groups, not because you show up to a lot of meetings, but because you're actually quite good at marketing, you've got lots of social media following. So I think that that has reinforced that echo chamber. And then one of the consequences of this, and you know, Paul asked, well, why do we care? And I think this is something I really do care about. Um, we care because civility is falling. And civility is about saying, look, I disagree with you about such and such, but finding a way to continue to live together is actually more important than when I, whether I win or lose that fight. And clearly we have more and more people at the moment who are in the political game who think it's more important to win the fight than it is to live with the other side the day after. Uh, and I think that's changed and I think that's a real danger because that's when polities really do fall apart. Um, you know, when people say that they would be a lot more worried about their child marrying someone who voted for the other political party than for someone who's from, you know, a different religion or a different ethnic group or whatever, you know there's something pretty fundamental going on and, and I think that that's a worry. Mm. And I think that decline in civility is a good reason for pessimism too. Uh, John. Over this side, please. Um, the gentleman just here. Um, going to another point... How much of the minor party's influence is being exaggerated by a very convoluted and distorted uh, voting system? And the one that comes to mind is Senator Roberts, who only got 72, 75 votes from primary votes. And is their influence lesser if you had a better established voting system that really reflected the uh, intentions of the public? Um, so the way I'd put this is if you look at the Senate vote in the last election, 36% of the electorate did not vote Liberal National Party, did not vote ALP. Now, any voting system worth its salt is going to reflect that 36% somehow. You can't just ignore it away. Uh, and the minor party vote in the House of Representatives was as high as it's, in fact, higher than it's basically ever been as well. So um, I think a good voting system, look, maybe you can find some arguments about why it should ignore a two or three percentage point vote. But when collectively that minor party vote is, including the Greens, 36%, I don't think that the electoral system should ignore it. And indeed, um, Andrew Charlton's done a lovely chart. Admittedly, it's only got three data points um, to, this po to the head in this direction, but at least all three do head in this direction. Every time the minor party vote has been this, time, this high historically, a major party has gone out of business and a new major party has been born, usually out of the ashes 
one way or another. Um, so I think that there is something significant going on here. Look, we can spend all night arguing about the kind of niceties of, of the precise way that the Senate votes. It's worth remembering that if you take one of the major parties' candidates and you look at you know number four on the list, the number of votes cast for them tends to be very small as well. You know, it's essentially a consequence of the way the Senate works that you vote for the party and it kind of trickles down from there. Um, there are some exceptions to that. But I think overall it's worth saying this non-major party vote is growing. It is large, absolutely. Um, you know, it's as large as the vote for either the ALP or the LNP collectively. And therefore, one way or another, the system should be reflecting that. And if you look at what's been happening in the Senate over the last little while, um, it's not obvious that those um, collectively, those minor party senators, are necessarily leading to particularly bad political outcomes. Um, and I, you know, not just the current Senate, but the previous Senate. You know, a lot of the time the government got most of its legislation through, indeed through the Gillard years as well, most of the time the government got its legislation through. When the Senate amended it, by and large, it kind of knocked the corners off it. That is kind of what the Senate is supposed to do. Um, you may or may agree, not agree with a particular corner that they knocked off, but as an overall piece of institutional design, I'd argue, look, it's not fundamentally broken. We're running close to time, so show me your hands, please. Show me your hands. The gentleman in the front row here. Um, John, I'd like to ask you a question about immigration. You mentioned immigration a little, um, some concern about it in the regions. I just wonder if you could talk a bit more about where you see the standing of that issue at the moment in Australia. Is there a difference between the cities and the regions. Um, immigration was a big issue in the UK with Brexit, I understand. Here we are a country of 49% of the people are either born overseas or have at least one parent born overseas. I wonder if that makes a difference. Just where do you see Australia, Australians um, on this issue at the moment when we have a very large migration program and yet seem some unease in some quarters? Yeah, well, let, let me pick that apart. In, in terms of this minor party voting phenomenon we see, and this is true both in the UK and Australia, and even more so in Australia, when you remember those maps that I talked about in terms of the um, number of migrants in regional areas, or rather the lack thereof, the places that are anxious about migrants are the places that haven't got any migrants. <laughs> I mean, you know, the migrants might be taking someone's job, but they're clearly not taking their jobs because they're not there. Um, so um, I think there is that cultural issue, but I think it's, as I said, I don't think that kind of putting the migrant numbers up or down is going to solve that, that cultural issue. I think that's a city versus regional cultural issue, and the horse is well and truly bolted on that one. Uh, and yes, you can dog whistle that, you know, you're hearing them because you do not, you know, you can look at the, the last federal budget and there were any number of measures that one way or another were, you know, amounted to be mean to foreigners, get foreigners to pay more tax. Um, uh, and, you know, it's people at the time did draw that line to say this is essentially trying to respond to those cultural concerns. So I think that that's one way that actually no amount of real policy change is in fact really going to allay the anxiety because the anxiety is about the, this cultural distance between regions and cities, and that's happened. 
I think there's a whole set of other issues around migration, um, exactly how large do we want it to be, what is the economically optimal answer to that question, that's one question. And then there's a much more subtle question, which is, given the way that we are actually running our planning policy and our infrastructure policy, are we taking the right number of migrants? Because the reality is the Commonwealth Government's got choices about all this stuff. That's a whole set of different concerns. My observation would be, I don't think that those concerns are shifting a lot of votes. I think they are real and genuine and very difficult policy problems that we you know, should be working our way through and thinking about a lot harder than we are at the moment. Um, but it's not, act I mean, interestingly, those questions are not at all about ethnic mix. They're actually about absolute numbers and exactly in what categories, with what skills, and so on. It's a whole series of quite subtle questions that I think, you know, you actually ask, so who's done any material work on this in public over the last 15 years? And it's a very, very short list. Um, uh, there's, there's one Productivity Commission report and kind of that's about it. Uh, so I think it's something we probably need to think through a lot more, but I don't think it will relate to this stuff around minor party voting. John, ladies and gentlemen, we're out of time, I'm sorry, but I want to cheat. I want to cheat, John. I'm going to ask one more, squeeze in one more question, please, if I may. I want to ask you for a prediction. If we reconvene in this room, all of us in about, say, 10 years' time, are we still going to be talking about the rise of populism in Australia and the rise of protest politics? That is, is what we see now the new normal? Well, I think that depends. That depends completely on what we do about it. We haven't perhaps talked as much as we should about what do we do about it. Um, if, if we're right about this, if, if a lot of this is about falling trust in government, well, it says, look, if you do things that might try and increase trust in government, you might make some progress. So um, if our major political parties really did try and broaden their memberships, that would be helpful. If they really did try and get more people in who hadn't basically, you know, finished university and then gone and worked for a minister's office, that might be helpful. Um, if uh, we, you know, put in place a genuine system around political entitlements that was seen to be genuine, that would be helpful. And we didn't take helicopters to and party fundraisers. And we didn't take helicopters too often. Um, if we put in place a serious um, policy around um, uh, political donations, that would be helpful. We all know that it would be possible to set up real-time political donation reporting, you know, give us a month would probably be a week longer than we need. And yet they don't do it. And we're all deeply cynical about it because we all know they could do it and they choose not to. We all know that you could limit the amount that people donate and we don't do it. And, you know, I think people are pretty cynical about why not. Um, there's, um, uh, in terms of influence, uh, you know, there are any number of issues which are clearly being run by the relevant lobby group rather than the public interest. And if governments made different decisions, they'd probably get credit for it in the long run um, in terms of all of this kind of stuff. Um, poker machines would be a pretty good place to start, and it's no accident that Nick Xenophon and um, uh, Andrew Wilkie came to power talking about that, which I think is a really good emblematic issue um, around this. Uh, so those things would all help. And then in terms of the regional thing, I mean, I think that's in a funny way harder, because that kind of cultural stuff is very difficult to deal with. Um, but I think that is actually about the rhetoric um, so you can talk about why migration is 
such a great thing and why multiculturalism is such a great thing because people from overseas come here and they kind of bring their own distinctive cultures with them and those distinctive cultures are kind of there for all of us to see. Um, and you have just pressed every red button in unison in the regions. Now, you can also talk about, isn't it great that we've got this fantastic multicultural program and people from all around the world come and they participate in Australian democracy and they participate in Australia's economy. Uh, and one of the things that they do is they set up their own restaurants and we all get to you know, go to those restaurants. And you haven't pressed any red buttons. Now, you haven't actually said anything that's particularly different. But you have, in one case, emphasised a cultural distance, and in another case, you've minimised that the appearance of cultural difference. I think you can send, spend more time having your major ministers spend time in regional areas, not having the entire cabinet descend on some poor, unsuspecting country down um, for a week and then, you know, disappear and, and you know, sort of uh, with a sort of pigeon strategy. Um, but but um, having individual ministers go and open the, you know, Easter festival in Taraville or whatever it might be, um, is a symbol that the, that the national government cares about your region. And I think one of the other things is that we've spent way too much time talking about you know, what national governments can do for regions in terms of making their populations grow and making their, economics, their, their economies grow. And, and the reality we know after 117 years of experience is that governments actually really struggle to deliver on that stuff. Um, because it's just really hard to make economic water flow uphill. And we're spending less time than we should be saying, all right, well, look, you know, we can't make a big difference there, but we are going to spend more money on your hospital, more money on your school. And instead what we do is that we actually deliberately conceal the cross-subsidies for regional areas for health and education. It is very hard to find out that there is, in fact, quite a substantial cross-subsidy, and governments go out of their way to pretend it's not there, when in fact I suspect they'd be doing a lot better in terms of minimising this cultural difference by saying, yeah, yeah, of course, we understand it costs more to deliver, you know, good health services, you know, in Western Victoria, and that's why we spend more money doing it, because it's important that people in Western Victoria get similar health outcomes. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think that we can do things like that that would at least go some way to minimising some of the cultural difference, and that would at least help. Mm. So, will we still be talking about this in 10 years? Now, very selfishly, I hope so. You know, I'm going to be downing, I'm hoping to dine out on this for years. Um, but um, uh, putting on a proper public interested hat, no, I hope that we actually understand what's really driving it. As I said, I think it's about trust and cultural difference. And then work out, well, if the voters are trying to send us a message here about something that they legitimately care about, and I think that these concerns are to some extent, you know, large extent, often legitimate, that we actually deal with the underlying causes. All right, well, we'll book this room again for about five years' time in that case, John. All that's left for me is to say uh, a few very quick thank yous. I'd like to thank the State Library staff. I'd like to thank uh, Megan French, the Grattan Institute's events guru. Uh, they have made this event happen tonight, and we very much appreciate it. I want to thank the State Library, a great institution, one of the things that makes this town such a livable city is the State Library of Victoria. Terribly exciting time at this place. Many of you all know of the Vision 2020 expansion program that's happening. If you don't get on board, learn about it. This place is getting bigger, better, more lively and more future 
focused. It's uh, fantastically exciting. I want to thank you, the audience, for coming out on this warm night, for your interest, for your questions, very good questions. And I wonder whether you'd all please join me in thanking the star of the show, John Daly. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy, with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.